Welcome back to Inspiring Neighbors Podcast, where we showcase seemingly ordinary people with extraordinary stories. Today, we had a guest on that I've known for, I want to say, ten, close to 10 years. Uh, we met uh, at a job, and I got to know him working with him. And he's an incredible person, incredible leader, uh, so full of like zest for life and mm-hmm. We talked about the way he just explores the world and and really has that mentality of get the most out of life. Yeah. I love this kind of sense of adventure and and just like lack of like fear, I guess. Just like going for different experiences and chasing the chasing experiences. I guess I'll say that. And anyway, yeah. I found that very cool, very inspiring. Yeah, I did too. And we also go into his journey after being diagnosed with brain cancer and the experiences that followed that and how he he overcame a lot of things in his life happening all at once. And it's such a kind of a, it really dumps your life upside down, really. Okay. From what we talked about, it was, it was very eye-opening, but it led him to, to study things like resilience and positive psychology and something called neuroplasticity, which was a new word for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he speaks so well on all those topics. And he's read many, many, many books on them and all, all and taking courses. And he just, the way he dove into that and really became this this wealth of knowledge and inspiration is is incredible. Yeah, he has an amazing perspective. I'm so glad he he was open to sharing it with us. Uh, Me too. I, I think I learned a lot, and yeah, I get, you can tell he was a resilient guy his whole life, and this has just elevated his power in that sense. Yeah, and he also talks about one more thing that he calls his to do list. Uh, I won't say any more than that, but we love the idea. And yeah, without further delay, please enjoy Alex Lang. Let's talk to our neighbors, because everyone can inspire the Inspiring Neighbors Podcast Light Your Fire. Wow. Yeah, the last time we were together, actually, I remember, I have a memory that pops up every time I don't feel like a man, (laughs) and it's Alex giving me shit for cheersing him with water. (laughs) Yes. I couldn't keep up with the big boys. (laughs) Yeah. It's bad luck. It was, they just get like drink after drink after drink. And then I was like, I got to stop this. I'm awaiting tomorrow to go to. So then he would cheers me and I had water. Stop cheersing me with your fucking water. Yeah, that was frowned upon. (laughs) But you'll be pleased to know those days behind me now. Yeah. Yeah. I had to grow up a little bit. You stop giving people shit about water. Yeah. That's good. No, I'm drinking the water. You're drinking more water. That's good. Yeah, it is. Oh, I heard this great thing. It said, when I was younger, I used to think that a grown-up drink was beer. Mm. And then I grew up and I re- realized that actually the grown-up drink is coffee. And then I realized that actually, no, the grown-up drink is water. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, Yeah, out. once you have enough coffee, then you decide to quit coffee. <laughs> yeah. And you're back to water. <laughs> and now water it's is like for you. a mix of five mushrooms and ashwagandha or something yeah. to get you going. Instead what? of coffee. <laughs> I've been doing some research on my own. <laughs> well, so, I, I also take ashwagandha bit before bed. Oh, before bed. Yeah. I thought it gives you energy. Um, or maybe not. Maybe it just 
levels out your adrenals. Yes. Is that what it's for? Yeah. Which is great for sleep. Hmm. And then you wake up at six, like ready to go. Yeah. Ready to rock and roll. Yeah. Are you a morning person? Uh, I think I am now. Yeah. Start my days with a really cold shower. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. Which is terrifying at first and now it's, it's kind of nice. And why do you do that? It wakes you up? Yeah, it wakes me up. Um, yeah, I just did a bit of reading about uh, neuroscience and came across a really great podcaster. Sorry to mention a competitor of yours. <laughs> that, please, please, by all means, we love mentioning <laughs> podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, really switched on neurobiologist Andrew Huberman. Hmm. Um, you can link his podcast in your notes, I guess. Yes, I'm going to. Huberman Labs. <laughs> so he talks a lot about uh, intentional cold exposure and uh, how that can do really good things for your dopamine levels and help your alertness during the day. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Wim Hof. Yep. He's the Iceman. Yep. So it's uh, a lot of the studies on on what he's done and the benefits he gets out of that. But it's been really good for me getting up at six, cold shower. One of the great things about Calgary is the water here is Ice super cold. cold. <laughs> You don't have to do anything. To no, it. <laughs> it's uh, it's like a polar dip every morning. But uh, yeah, Holy so smokes. so ashwagandha before bed, ice Ooh. cold shower in the morning makes me feel great. Holy cow! I think, and, I it's think. Me- <laughs> <laughs> and it's meant to help build resilience. Wow! Intentionally exposing yourself to something uncomfortable. Okay, I'm gonna try this. Yeah, I'm probably gonna hate it. Yeah, the first two or three days are terrible. I was going to say, the first two or three months are probably terrible. <laughs> yeah. Were you doing this when I knew you? No. Back this in is, the day? This is a recent thing. Okay. I only became obsessed with uh, neuroscience after I lost a pretty big chunk of my brain. Yeah. That makes sense, though. Yeah. Let me yeah. start doing some research. Yeah, I wanted to learn about what's what's going on and how I can try and fix what's left in my brain. So did they... We're, I'm not going to get into that yet. I want to chat about something else first. Yeah. So I wanted to open with a story um, to to show everyone the kind of person Alex is. When I worked uh, eight years ago, maybe, I got a job uh, pretty fresh out of university. I was only two or three years out of university for... <laughs> <laughs> so I worked for a company and um oil and gas company yeah oil and gas company here in alberta the after about six months they said you're going up north you're going to do shift work up north uh in fort mcmurray hmm. which living the dream yeah when i started the job i said i do not want to go up north and they said yeah yeah it's okay uh so You'll hate it the first two or three times, but then you'll like, yeah. Just, yeah. It was just like a cold shower every, yeah. si- every single day. It really was. <laughs> Maybe worse. Yeah. Anyways. Um, I had only been up for like a day trip to the mine site. And we met Alex because Alex was kind of like our tour guide. He picked us up for the day and got us our hard hats and... Made sure we knew how to put them together. Showed us around. <laughs> Made sure you didn't break anything or break yourself. Yeah, he called the hard hats a stupid test. This yeah. is your stupid test. I just remember, like, oh, man, I got to prove myself to this guy. <laughs> the bar has been set. Yeah, but I think I set a land speed record for putting the hard hat together. Yeah, you did good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, 
fast forward a few months after that day trip, uh, my boss has said, you're going to go up north and do shift work. And I was nervous. I was a pretty young guy. I didn't know really what to expect and what working up there on shifts was like. Uh, and one day I was kind of at work stewing about going to site and Alex and my phone rings and it's Alex who I'd never talked to after that site visit. And he said, I heard you're coming up to site. I was just calling to like, give you some tips and advice and figure out when you're going to land so I can pick you up. Aww. Like it was, he was so genuine in helping me become comfortable. Like he knew that I was going to probably be nervous. So yeah. I never thanked you for it properly, so oh, thank you for that. No problem. But yeah, we got there, and there was Alex waiting at the where the bus leaves you, like stops, and he helped me get all my stuff, gave me some good tips uh, <laughs> to handle some of the people that shall remain unnamed yes. uh, in our office. But I remember you saying, there's just two things you have to remember. Do what you're asked, and no bullshit. Yeah. And sometimes I remember that. I was really good at bullshitting, though. It yeah. made me a little bit sad. <laughs> <laughs> I've honed the skill. Yeah. So then when it came time for bullshitting, it was just me and Alex bullshitting yeah. with each other. Behind closed doors. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was really fun. And I appreciated that. So yeah. that well, kind of shows the kind of person Alex was. Thank you. Did you think I would be nervous? Is that why you did it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I could tell from our site visit you hated being there. <laughs> it makes such a huge difference to have somebody that you feel it's looking out for you and a does. strange new environment yeah. yeah yeah and i was a a new engineer once and mm-hmm. um yeah it was quite a quite a shift going from an office to to a mine site and mm-hmm. being away from home but yeah it was and it was good for me i had uh i had someone i could bullshit with and mm-hmm. not uh not be too concerned about the repercussions of what i had to say <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was fun they were good yeah. so you were born in Australia. Yeah. You went to university. You grew up there, went to university in Australia. Yeah, that's part of my speech impediment. Hopefully people can hear me. Yeah, I didn't want to say anything, but <laughs> it's okay. You Did you work in mining in Australia before you came here? No, I didn't. I was actually working as an accountant before I came to Canada. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. And I uh, realized that's not what I wanted to do with the rest yeah. of my life, yeah. so... Uh, I had some friends that were going to Banff to be ski bums, and I thought that sounds way better than being an accountant. Yeah. And uh, I'll figure out the rest of my life after being a ski bum, and yeah, here I am 13 years later. Was it supposed to be a permanent move? No, or it was just... meant to be a go have fun for six months and then mm-hmm. move back to Sydney and figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. Yeah. But, so we gotcha. Uh, yeah. So how long were you skiing... Uh, skiing stuff so i worked at uh, sunshine village up at the ski hill for <clears throat> four or five months oh, okay um and then got to enjoy a bit of the summer in banff and then started looking for a grown-up job and mm-hmm. found something up in fort mcmurray very mm-hmm. easily because it was boom times back in 08 yeah so i got to got some exposure to a mining operation and got to use my engineering brain a bit and mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really good. I was kind of hooked from there. And might have, might have been the paycheck, not the working conditions, but <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, what were the working like? What were the camps like in two thousand eight? Were they? Oh, uh, so I started at the Fort Hill site, mm-hmm. which is now an operating mine, but we were the first contractor there, so it was literally a 
a construction trailer that had beds in it. Oh wow! Yeah, it was it was pretty rough, but yeah, yeah, it was so, okay. When I think about that's what got distracted when you're talking about the accent because I was thinking about Australia and it's like I think we have this perception at least in Canada it's it's like hard country like there's very dangerous there's lots of adventure to be had but yeah. it's also like um, wild you know like of course you have the cities but there's so much to explore in terms of the outdoors yeah and then so many of the Australians that we've seen in Canada just have such a strong spirit of adventure and and that kind of um, maybe thirst for experiences in life. Yeah. And do you, I was just like, do you, how do you speak to that? Do you feel like that's an Australian trait? Something about growing up in Australia uh, builds that up in you? Is that more of a selectivity of like people who do come out here have that and that's why they're here? No, I think that's definitely a thing. You know, it's, we're so remote in Australia. It's not like here where you can get on a plane and go to Mexico or the Caribbean in you know five or six hours there's nothing really close to Australia apart from New Zealand and we don't really like New Zealanders or the country so <laughs> um, but before I came to Canada I went to Europe for six months and lived in London for another six months um, and with a big group of friends and I think that's a almost a rite of passage for Australians <laughs> to pack up and go move to the UK and travel Europe and do all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I think that's uh, a lot of, a lot of people finish university and do that. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I love travel. Um, my wife's a flight attendant, which is a great, uh, a great fit for me, apart from her being an amazing woman. Uh, we get to travel lots and uh, we've got a young daughter now and we're still traveling lots with her. Mm. Uh, which is great, except for the 12 suitcases and mm -hmm. stroller and car seat and yeah. crib. And, yeah. Adds to the uh, excitement. Adds to the excitement, exactly. Um, but, yeah, I, I love travel and doing new things like podcasting. And, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I, I see this pattern that it's like you're not, you're not, you don't seem to be seeking comfort in your life. No, no, I wouldn't say that. No, I like... I like challenges and, um, yeah, babysitting Trevor I thought was a good challenge to take on. It was. <laughs> and, yeah. and I succeeded at that. Possibly your so. biggest challenge. That's a big compliment. Possibly. Yeah. Prepared me for being a dad for sure. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Prepared me for being a dad too. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> like, I want to be like Alex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point that you made that you you're not... You're you're okay with not being comfortable, like, yeah. I would notice that too, and yeah, it was. I remember there was days where it was at least minus forty. We'd go out, and Alex would throw on a jacket, half zip it up, and just stand by the door waiting for me. I'd put like snow pants on, <laughs> boots, jacket, second yeah. jacket, hard three tukes, hard, hard hat. hat. Yeah, I had like a balaclava underneath yeah. my hard hat. I was just only missing snow, like goggles. Yeah. And yeah. then Alex looks amazing. And then we'd get out the titty. door and be like, Trevor, okay, we were meant to be there 15 minutes yeah. ago. <laughs> I'm so hot. <laughs> we've, we've missed it. Yeah. <laughs> They're done construction now. <laughs> yeah, the plant's built. Yeah. <laughs> 
But I remember you asking, like, I came to the truck ready, and you you had been sitting there. You finished your coffee, basically, waiting for me. <laughs> and you said you have your teddy in there, too, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's his strength and sense of humor, and mm-hmm. I'm glad you got it. Some some people don't yeah, I warm like up it. to it as well. <laughs> I liked it. I still call my one jacket my teddy. I told Laura that story when I got home from yeah. that shift, and now we just refer to it as my teddy jacket. Nice. It keeps me nice and warm. <laughs> so did you, I don't want to say, did you fall in love with mining? Or did you? Did it just become a solid choice? Yeah, it was a good career choice, and it meant I didn't have to go and figure out what I wanted to do, like mm-hmm. I was planning to when I got back to Australia. Yeah. Um, and then I got to work in some cool places. I got to travel a lot uh, from a job I had in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, got to see some cool places. Went to Q8, which wasn't really somewhere that was on my yeah. bucket list. Or Interesting. Somewhere I'd pay money to go see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got to work up in the Northwest Territories for a couple of years. So was that diamond, a diamond mine that you were up there? Yeah, so I got to spend two years working up in the Arctic at a diamond mine. Cool. Um, yeah, that was like minus 50, minus 60. That was terrible. I got cold there. I had a teddy... <laughs> I had a teddy jacket up there. Finally, makes me feel better. finally understood, Trevor. <laughs> After ten years, I finally can let that go. <laughs> yeah, um, and yeah, that was great. Um, I think I really enjoyed the rotational roster. Mm-hmm. Um, to when we worked together, that was horrible. I worked ten days on and four days off, mm-hmm. and that is terrible for a lifestyle. Yeah, it's not a good shift. Um, but I really didn't like Monday to Friday. Uh, my time at the diamond mine was two weeks on, two weeks off. That was good. So that was amazing. So I'd spend two weeks uh, traveling. And um, one time when I came back to work, like directly from Australia, my uh, boss saw how I looked and he brought me into his office. And he's <laughs> like, so, you know, the two week on, two week off roster is to let you work really hard for two weeks and then, rest. And then go home and rest for two weeks. And I was like, yeah. Sure. Okay. <laughs> do you not hear my accent? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he said, what do you got planned for your next days off? And I said, oh, we're going back to Australia. He's like, oh, come on. Like, you got to mm-hmm. you gotta rest and recover. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'll do that later. Yeah, I'll rest when I'm 90. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's sweet. That's such a sweet setup. So you'd work for two weeks. And then were you married at the time or were you with your wife? Uh, with my wife so this was at the diamond mine mm-hmm. and before we got engaged but i was actually able to get a diamond from the oh, wow. from the mine yeah i went in there underground and kind of had my pick and chisel out and yep. found a nice one this one will do polished it up yep. yeah it was great that's amazing <laughs> that's so cool <laughs> yeah it was good so yeah we got engaged after i left the diamond mine um before i met you up north mm-hmm. i think i was married by then yeah so you had do two weeks of work and then you'd go traveling for two weeks yeah every day every time every time yeah we lived in toronto my wife's mm. a flight attendant and sometimes i'd go back to toronto or sometimes i'd fly to edmonton and then pick up a plane somewhere mm-hmm. that's amazing that was great yeah yeah one one set of days off we had a, a trip planned to go diving in cozumel mm-hmm. with a bunch of air canada people yeah 
and we got down there and we were there for seven days, I think. And one of the friends we were with was looking at at the flights because we travel standby. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, if, mm-hmm. you know, it's cheap, but if there's not a seat on the flight, you don't get on the plane. Yeah. And she had said, hey, the flight to uh, Beijing looks wide open <laughs> like next Wednesday. <clears throat> and I said, well, I got to go back to work a few days after that. <laughs> okay. And they said, well, let's go for 48 hours. <laughs> oh, my God. I said, God. sure. <laughs> so, Why not? After a week on the beach diving in Cosmo, went to Beijing for 48 hours and then flew back to the Northwest Territories wow. and back to work. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Life was great. Does that kind of lifestyle make the world feel smaller or bigger? Oh, definitely smaller. Yeah. Yeah, especially being able to go back to Australia to see my family and friends Mm -hmm. so often. Um, Australia's a long way from the Arctic. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there'd be temperature swings of minus 30 to plus 30, Mm -hmm. which was kind of nice. But, you know, I'd I'd rock up in Australia with Trevor's teddy jacket and Mm -hmm. not need it. (laughs) (laughs) And Um, all your friends would make fun of you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a great lifestyle at a great time. And, um, but I love how much that was your choice. Like that's, you made it a great lifestyle because it'd be so easy to go with the expectation of two weeks on two weeks of rest. And maybe on that, those two weeks you do like your errands and your chores Mm. and and maybe go to the doctor appointment and and that kind of thing. And then you're you're back to it. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that's. That's interesting because you're saying like it's it was a great lifestyle. I just want to say like it probably is not for everybody the no, same, right? No, it, it's definitely not for everyone. But I knew, and it was probably the work conditions of being an accountant. But Monday to Friday was not my not my thing, and yeah, being an accountant really sucked. Sorry mm. to sorry to all the accountants out there that are <laughs> listeners, but not for, you. Not, not for me. I'm so, sure I'm sure you agree. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're saying, don't apologize. (laughs) But there was something I noticed about you, like your work ethic has always been very good, right? Would you agree with that? Like you've had an amazing work ethic. Yeah. You don't, I never, unless I just sat you down for the purpose of bitching about work, (laughs) you never really complained. Yeah. You just, you got, then there was tons to complain about. Yeah, there was lots to complain about. But I never really heard it from you. Yeah. And I saw like you work really hard. Yeah. Is that something you always have? I think so. Um, definitely going into university, I decided to do two degrees at once and wanted to finish them as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. um, which I did. I did two degrees in five years. Wow. And then, yeah, when I started working, I I guess I just wanted to be the best at everything I did. Yeah. Um, and I've kept that going, I'd like to think. I've been yeah. pretty successful in my career mm-hmm. up until recently, but that's external factors that I really had no control over. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. I, I kind of pride myself on my work ethic and mm-hmm. being prepared. I Just like that. this podcast. Trevor was <laughs> Trevor had the software loaded and we were, we were ready to start talking as soon as I got here. Yeah. It was great. It didn't take an hour to get going. <laughs> Yeah, what what time is it? Oh, it's okay. like I have to go. Okay. Yeah. So I left that job, mm-hmm. and the only other time I saw you after that was at a wedding. Yeah. Tons of fun. Got made fun of again. Yeah. Which was good. 
And then uh, we lost touch for a little bit. We would chat every now and then on Facebook and stuff. Yeah. And then I started seeing these posts about like a surgery or things happening and I wasn't really sure what was happening. So I reached out and I'll let you describe it. Uh, 20, 2018, uh, it was just before Christmas. I was, uh, going to the gym, had a really good workout. I think beat everybody there at the workout. For sure. Obviously you had to be the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, finished it, sat down and then had a massive seizure. Oh. Um, yeah, which wasn't part of the workout plan. No, I can't imagine. <laughs> um, and luckily for me, I guess, I had a very good friend there at the gym with me. Probably wasn't great for her seeing me seizing after a workout for yeah, no kidding. five minutes, apparently. Um, woke up in the hospital and was a little bit confused. And um, yeah, they ran a bunch of tests, took a long time, and they did a... Sorry, so they couldn't do a CT scan that night because this was in Canmore and they didn't have staff for the CT machine overnight. So sat there overnight wondering what was going on with my brain. And, oh, my God. Um, that was a really long night. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and then the next morning when the imaging people came in, had a CT scan, they said, uh, so there's a really big mass on your brain. That's probably what caused the seizure. Not sure what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was pretty devastating. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I had... I was working in Saskatchewan at the time. Mm -hmm. I think I had to fly back to work a couple of days later. And I messaged my boss and I was like, Hey, I'm in the hospital, but, you know, I'll be back Tuesday. Maybe maybe Wednesday. Maybe I need another day. Yeah. <laughs> and my <laughs> wife told me I was an idiot, which wasn't the first time and probably yeah. won't be the last time. probably right. Uh, so they managed to get me into foothills in Calgary for a MRI mm -hmm. and, uh, they found brain tumor. They were able to kind of figure out what type of tumor it was, mm -hmm. um, which wasn't great as far as brain tumors go. And yeah, this was six or seven days away from Christmas. And the surgeon said, so we can do a biopsy, you know, drill a hole in my head, take a bit out of it. And mm -hmm test it we can remove the tumor or we can just sit and monitor it huh. and i thought well if you're gonna drill a hole in my skull you might as well take the tumor take out, it out. Yeah. um and i was really fortunate um i have two very good friends in australia who are neuro neurosurgeons oh wow um one of them my mum, she was a nurse she operated with a very long time ago and he's probably australia's top neurosurgeon wow uh, so being able to call someone like that and say, Hey, this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, what do I do? What, you know, the surgeon's telling me this, what do you think? Um, yeah, that was, that was unreal. Um, I've been so lucky to have the support that I've had and, you know, having someone like that on my side has been, I'd definitely say life changing. No kidding. Uh, but being that close to Christmas, the surgeon said, so... You know, we'd need a few days to plan this, take some more images. You know, we're going to be right up by Christmas. You know, I'll be honest, there's probably going to be the B team working over Christmas. Oh, my God. What you, a thing to hear. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want the B team for the surgery. So I said, okay. So he said, we'll wait till January 19th, I think. Hmm. And I thought, oh, that's a really long time. Five days. Um, and he had an idea from the imaging 
uh, of where the tumor started and, you know, gave me a, a, a guesstimate as to what uh, life expectancy and prognosis was. And uh, that was pretty devastating because it wasn't a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, which I found surprising because he could only look at what the imaging showed. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised that he said, gave you time. Yeah, no, me too. And it was very surprising how, <laughs> how short it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so he assumed it was cancerous, um, which is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So it's b- benign and malignant tumors, and the malignant ones are bad. They continue to grow. Um, they could tell me what size it was. It was about the size of a small lemon, I guess. Oh, wow. Which is, you know... Quite relative large. to your head, yeah. Yeah, relative to the size of your brain, and you know they've got to cut all that brain tissue out. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, then had a really terrible Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, got so back to the Australian humour. <laughs> Good friend of mine from Australia bought me the uh, the board game uh, operation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so good. that's the one where you got to put the tweezers in, yeah. and pull pull the brain <laughs> out, and to pull the heart off out, the buzzer. Try not to buzz it. Um, oh, so, wow. so that made light of things yeah. a little bit. Um, I like it. And yeah, but then I had to spend the next few weeks getting tests done and getting prepared. Um, yeah, really terrible Christmas. Definitely uh, didn't have all the beers that I used to have over New Year's. Yeah. Um, I was probably toasting people with water then, mm-hmm. so don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> makes me feel better. Yeah, <laughs> comes up. I so, like, sorry, I like the relative. It's like when he was in minus sixty weather in the Arctic, he could relate yeah, to you. Exactly. Fort Mac. And yeah, no kidding. He was drinking Took water at some point. For him to relate to me. Yeah. The um, I wanted to ask, what were your thoughts like at this point? Like when you're told news like that, I can't even imagine where my head would go. Yeah, but. it was it was pretty dark. I'd say I was pretty depressed mm-hmm. um, right off the bat. Like, I had a really great life at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, amazing wife, really great relationship, great friends, lived in Canmore, Fear Alberta people. It's a really good place to live. Mm-hmm. Um, had a great job, worked for a great company, and, uh, yeah, it kind of felt like everything was was crashing down around me Mm -hmm. um so probably five or six days before i had the tumor my wife and i were at a fertility clinic in calgary Mm -hmm. we'd been trying to have a baby for probably a year at this point and thought okay maybe we'll get some tests done and find out what the problem is and and they said you know you both work away kind of on rotation that's probably a timing thing everything looks good Gotcha. Um, so, you know, we were moving our life in that direction, and then this yeah. mm-hmm. all kind of changed everything and had to uh, rethink our life a little bit. Um, one of the things that we're still trying to deal with right now is the surgeon said because of the location of the tumor and the surgery, there was a chance that I'd lose mobility mm-hmm. post surgery. We lived in a three-story townhome at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Really beautiful place, but, you know, I was like, okay, maybe a three-story townhome isn't ideal for for us and what my future is. So we ended up selling our place in Canmore, tried to find a, a single-level place in Calgary, which is really hard to do. I mm-hmm. uh, found a split-level place, so that's where we're living now. 
Um, but actually, even this morning, we looked at a condo uh, in the city. Just okay. Yeah. Just something we've kind of got to be prepared for in yeah. the future. Because mm-hmm. uh, of the type of tumor, it will come back at some point. Just not sure when. And at that point, you know, I could likely lose mobility. Being a home won't really be ideal. So, mm-hmm. you know, we want to... We want to find a condo now that we could see ourselves living in yeah. if we needed to move at some point. Um, so, yeah, it was totally life-changing. But, yeah, I'd definitely say I, I fell into a depression pretty quickly. And, yeah. Um, you know, the, I, something I struggled with is, for me, it wasn't just about the fact that, okay, my life's going to be cut really short. Um it's like for me i was kind of mourning the future that i had planned with my wife Mm -hmm. um you know just thinking when we retire we'll keep traveling and do all these amazing things and you know i really i was mourning losing that yeah um so yeah that was tough and then you know the fertility thing i was told after the surgery i'd have to do radiation and chemotherapy and that uh damages your dna and the chemotherapy can be toxic um, in my system for, they can't exactly say when, but mm-hmm. probably up to five years. Oh, wow. So we had to make a decision, you know, I can freeze freeze my, my stuff before the chemotherapy um, and then try and do IVF or mm-hmm. we just forget about having kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we'd been, you know, in the mindset of trying for a year at that point, we decided to uh to you know i made a donation and mm-hmm. we froze the donation mm-hmm. uh and then after dealing with the radiation and chemotherapy started down an ivf journey which is uh pretty terrible as well yeah but i'm hoping at some point my wife will come in and she can share that side of things with you guys but that yeah. was a that was a pretty terrible experience i can um, imagine and these things were happening alongside each other like your surgeries yeah. And the ABF. Yeah. Yeah. So I did the surgery in January, then started radiation treatment in, I want to say, March. And then chemo started in May, and that was 12 months of, of chemotherapy. I think we did the first IVF transfer while I was doing chemotherapy. Um, so that was really terrible. And it was unsuccessful the first round and then we had to wrap our heads around doing another one so at this point your wife your amazing wife is supporting you Mm -hmm. and doing i'm guessing um hormone therapy i don't know the exact word for it yeah that that's it daily injections yes um so she's doing those both yeah wow what an amazing i guess weight to hold yeah yeah no it was a i mean it's a lot for her there's definitely two sides of you know cancer there's the deal for the patient and then the deal Mm -hmm. for the caregiver it's um yeah yeah, i don't know which is better (laughs) yeah i don't think either are better to be honest but Mm -hmm. yeah it was a huge uh huge change for her as well Mm -hmm. um and to take on the ivf was was pretty amazing for her no Um, kidding and yeah, you know, just watching her have to inject herself every day was just terrible. Yeah. Um, been quite a time, but um, 
I'll, I'll kind of cut the IVF story short, but after yeah. four attempts and unfortunately two miscarriages, uh, we decided, okay, maybe IVF isn't for us. And mm-hmm. uh, 18 months ago now, we were actually able to adopt a newborn baby girl, which was fantastic. So mm-hmm. really, really lucky in a lot of ways. Yeah. We and... feel like we're really lucky, unlucky people, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's an incredible story, and yeah. I'd like to get into it when we have your wife on. Yeah, um, I yeah think it's a great story. It's, yeah, it truly is a, an amazing story. So at some point... Does your mindset shift at all as you're starting to go through like the surgeries and the therapy, the chemo and radiation? Are you still in that depressed state, I guess, or does it shift at all? Were you able to find something to help? um, After the surgery, I was pretty out of it. Um, Like I had to relearn how to do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I knew how to work, but... Like, I, I wasn't stable. Mm. Um, I had a lot of trouble, like, using my fingers, holding things. Speech was a bit of a problem. You know, so I had to learn a lot of new things, but I was, you know, I can't remember anything about that time, which is yeah. probably a good thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, my wife had to deal with big personality changes from me. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't remember any of that, but I'm sure I wasn't easy to be around. Yeah. And, you know, probably adding the depression on top of that was was pretty terrible. Um, but I was actually able to reach out to a friend uh, that I'd met traveling Europe a long time ago. And she is a positive psychology practitioner. Okay. I guess. Um, so she introduced me to the field of positive psychology. Um, ended up taking a course in that later um but she introduced me to a lot of good things and you know essentially gave me a toolkit on how to deal with things and that really helped wow. a lot that introduced me to uh, neuroscience and that got me really interested in trying to figure out a way to to help myself um i know there's no cure for brain cancer but i figured i can do as much as i can to have a healthy brain and kind of have a better outlook on life mm-hmm. um and I was probably able to turn that around in six months. Um, the radiation and chemo treatments were pretty terrible. You know, the chemotherapy was taking poison for five days a month. Mm-hmm. And then you know, it was kind of like my time in the Northwest Territories. <laughs> you have 23 days to recover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I wasn't traveling the world and mm. uh, doing crazy things at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, it really was five days of poison followed by 23 days of of recovery but then there was also you know five days leading up to it of oh god i gotta take this poison again and put myself through this oh god yeah um and radiation was terrible as well you know every day for 33 days was 15 minutes sitting in machine and just feeling horrible afterwards Mm mm-hmm um, but yeah, I'd say six months probably after the surgery, I was able to change my outlook on things. Um, and I, I think a really big part of that was the support network I had. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got such a huge number of friends in Australia that, you know, I can count on any time to do stuff for me. Every time we go back to Australia, you know, we'd have a group of 20 or 30 people come and wow. 
come and visit us and you know i'm 40 now i, I don't know a lot of 40 year olds that have mm-hmm. that big a group of friends no kidding I um my wife wa- <laughs> <laughs> uh, my wife is always shocked at when we go back how many people want to come and see us and um yeah i just had so much support from them support from my family support from you know neurosurgeons and mm-hmm. i just had so many people to rely on you know my friend in new york who did the positive psychology stuff she offered me a lot of free resources wow uh which was just great and yeah i'm very lucky to be so well supported and that really helped me through a lot of a lot of dark stuff Mm -hmm. also got a little puppy Mm -hmm. during that time Mm -hmm. and you know i've you know i'd like to say to be resilient you need a good support network and not everyone's as fortunate as i am with that network but you know, just having a puppy to to support me, mm-hmm. you know, put a smile on my face, take me, get me out of the house and go for a walk three times a day. She's mm-hmm. a little Australian shepherd that's got endless energy, wow. um, but very, very loving. And uh, she liked to sit on the couch with me when I was recovering from, uh-huh. from chemo and stuff. But uh, yeah, you just... Need support, and of course, you know my wife's definitely my biggest supporter. Without mm-hmm. her, I wouldn't have been able to to get to where I am today. Yeah. Um, Were you able to travel at all while you're going through this? Probably not, right? Uh, <clears throat> we were actually we went to Hawaii a few times. Okay. So Hawaii is very special to my wife and I. We got married <clears throat> on Maui, mm-hmm. and that's really been our go-to travel destination to get away from calgary's winters mm-hmm. which are lovely but yeah uh 30 degrees on the beach in maui is a little bit nicer. a little better yeah um so yeah we went to maui a few times uh unfortunately it must have been early 2020 when i finished my chemotherapy so covid then came and put an end to any travel and mm-hmm. australia was really strict with their quarantine uh, rules and because my wife isn't a citizen if i wanted to go i could quarantine but she wouldn't be able to join me oh wow um so i didn't get back to australia for until april 2022 oh, um wow. but my parents were able to come visit which was oh, that's good. which was really good yeah so covid you know throwing covid on top of everything else was <laughs> no kidding <laughs> it was pretty was terrible storm. yeah yeah so then into the, is it six months after you started the positive psychology stuff? Can you explain like kind of what is what is positive psychology? A lot of people think it's just about being happy and um, trying to put a smile on your face all the time. Yeah. Uh, the the person who really started it uh, is a guy named Dr. Martin Seligman. He's written some great books. Uh, Learn, learned optimism and flourish. Uh, <laughs> are really great books and uh, he'd been working as a clinical psychologist for 20 or 30 years and he got really frustrated that he was trying to bring people that had you know really bad mental illnesses from you know say a minus five on the spectrum to get them to a zero Mm -hmm. and he was like why can't we take people from a one or a two to a five or a ten yeah and so that's what he started focusing his research on um and you know his book flourish is you know literally about getting people to thrive flourish and thrive mm-hmm. 
so it's not just about treating people who are depressed or have anxiety. It's trying to trying to give people tools, you know, like I found to to help me through day to day life and um, just get to a better place. So it's not just being bubbly and waking up with a smile on your face. There's more no, to it than that. No, there's a lot more to it. And, uh, you know, I certainly found it was hard to try and be optimistic all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but optimism is part of it. But a big part of it, too, is, you know, being realistic. Um, Karen Rivich has a really great book on resilience. And uh, she talks about, you know, there are seven skills you can learn to be resilient and part of that is being realistic about situations Mm. um so quite often an event will happen and then our mind will start catastrophizing Mm -hmm. that event and that'll lead us to you know our emotion it might be rage or depression or but you know she says that you got to apply like okay what's the what's the worst case scenario that's going to happen out of this like i lose my job Mm-hmm. Okay, the worst case is my wife's going to leave me. I'm going to lose my house. Um, you know, I'm going to give a terrible life to my daughter. Mm-hmm. You know, all these things are going to go terribly. And, you know, that's going to drive my emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. If I think about it like, okay, what's the most likely scenario? Okay, I'm going to lose my job. It's going to be tough. My wife and I have been smart. We've got a, a savings in case something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm well educated, I'm a hard worker, I'll find a new job in six months. Yeah. And we'll be fine. Um so having being able to apply that sort of realistic situational awareness is really key to to being optimistic. Um Yeah, and you know, I think our brains just automatically think to a worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. And once you can recognise that, yeah, I think you can help yourself and um i had to learn how to communicate after the surgery and everything i was i was terrible at communicating before but you know that (laughs) that got worse and i think throwing in some depression um and catastrophizing everything you know that was really tough on my wife Mm -hmm. Uh, i couldn't communicate um yeah i had to learn how to communicate effectively and you know, there were a few good resources in positive psychology about that as well. Wow. Um, and I, I just read as much as I could. There's a really good quote. I think it's Warren Buffett that says, the best return on investment you'll ever get is reading a book. You know, he said you can effectively get someone's life's work condensed into a really highly edited four-hour <laughs> investment of your of your time. Yeah. So I, I read an awful lot. I don't know we're going to talk about bucket lists or... What to-do list, as I prefer to call them. I okay. really, really hate the term bucket list. Okay. <laughs> Why do you hate the term bucket list? <laughs> um, I think when you're confronted uh, with the idea of kicking the bucket, it's not a very endearing term. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. So, yeah, I, I don't like the term. I, I love the concept, and there's lots of things that I want to do. Um, but for some reason, I decided, okay, in a year, I want to read 52 books. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so I did that in 2021. And most of them were positive psychology based Mm -hmm. and neurobiology. And, you know, I think that was, that was really good for me. Uh, I had to learn how to leave my phone alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked a little bit about this earlier. My phone isn't in this room, which might give a lot of people anxiety, but it gives me anxiety. Yeah. Uh, And I had to 
delete the Facebook app off my phone. Mm-hmm. Man, that was a that was life changing. I can like, see it. For me to check Facebook, I have to go to my computer and log in. Mm-hmm. And to do that, I really couldn't be bothered. Mm-hmm. It feels like a huge life suck to me. Yeah, I I think it's a great platform and it's great for people to keep in contact. You know, it's great mm-hmm. for say your podcast, people's businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's just I didn't have the time. And something I did probably between getting the the diagnosis and having the surgery. I think Apple at the time had just come out with a, you know, a time tracking mm-hmm. app that shows you how much time you spend on your phone. Yeah. And I, I decided, okay, I, I had a pretty good idea that I had limited time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to optimize that. And I set a limit on my phone to ping me when I'd hit two hours of social media a day. Okay. And I thought, oh, there's no way I'll hit two hours of social media. And it would go off before lunch. Wow. And I was like, how is this possible? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, deleted the Facebook app. Yeah, I never get a ping that I've exceeded two hours of social media time. It's amazing. Yeah. I'm curious how that pairs with you having such a strong social network, actually, in your life, which is yeah. rare. Yeah, um, no, that, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I have, I have really strong connections with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even here in Canada, um, I've got a few of my very close friends that live in Calgary and Canmore. Uh, two of my groomsmen are actually live nearby, which is, uh, really great. But yeah, I have really strong social ties and maybe I don't need the, Mm -hmm. I don't feel the need to have a, a virtual social connection. Right. Like you can maintain those relationships outside of the. Yeah social media yeah. platforms yeah yeah that's a great point and that's probably richer yes i think so um but again i feel like i'm very fortunate and a lot of people maybe don't have that yeah i would like in my, my sense of social media is it, it you it makes it very easy to feel like you're connected to people mm-hmm. even if you're not at all <laughs> like yeah. it's just this it's just a very surface connection where yeah. just because you can be browsing pictures mm-hmm. or posts that somebody put you feel like you kind of know what's going on with their life but um but it's very effortless and probably you get very little out of it because of that mm-hmm. as opposed to yeah reaching out and texting someone or calling someone it i think why it's rare a lot of it is because it feels like it's hard to make time for those things yeah but then you're probably getting a lot more out of it yeah good point it's a really good point yeah i've had conversations with angela about like social media on your phone and i like i've said i'll find myself standing in the kitchen after what seems like a blackout and i'm just staring at my phone and my three-year-old staring at me saying yeah put hey. your phone away yeah, yeah. <laughs> thinking about the support network and mm-hmm. you know you say you have uh, so much kind of support and that's that's really good to hear I think when we have friends or close ones who close uh, people who are going through something that difficult, you really want to be there to support them. But sometimes it's not so clear what's the best way to do that, especially if they're going through something where they might feel like they want to be left alone. They, yeah, you know, need space kind of thing. So I'm curious what kind of where did the best support look like to you in your experience? Uh, 
I, I mean, we were so lucky again to have so many different types of support. Um, you know, a great thing from the community I had at the gym where I had the seizure, uh, they did a fundraiser for me and they bought us, uh, I don't know, $500 worth of pre-made meals. Wow. Um, so, I mean, it's not the monetary thing. It's just, you know, for us we had to drive to calgary every day to do my radiation treatment mm-hmm. but we had pre-made meals that we could put in the microwave and um you know that was great and you know having people to talk to and people to listen um i was shocked um even good friends don't know how to react and you know say really stupid things mm-hmm. surprisingly i think if you ever start a conversation with I don't know what to say, then maybe you should leave it at that. Because pe- people will start with, I don't I don't even know what to say, and then a little bit of that, and you'll be like, mm, maybe you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I've, I'm so glad you guys brought this up because I had a similar question. And even when I reached out to you after this was happening, I didn't know what to say. Yeah. But I felt that I needed to, t- I needed to reach out to you. <clears throat> yeah. And I had the same thought, like, does he want me to reach out to you? Does Alex, will he respect it? Will he appreciate it? Is it what he needs? And I've had conversations with other, I've had a conversation with another uh, cancer survivor who, who mentioned that often when, when it comes up, she has to make that person feel better. Now it's kind of on her shoulders right. to make the person feel better. Hmm. about the state that she's in have you found that at all um i don't think so i think more recently uh with you know my appearance now mm-hmm. after some other surgical complications i'm pretty um i'm very conscious of how i look mm-hmm. i think and i feel like you know the surgery the last surgery i had um you know they took a piece of my thigh and stitch it into my head i don't think that's something a lot of people see um and yeah i feel like i need to make people comfortable with that to be honest you know i spend a lot of time hiding under a hat mm-hmm. or a toque the great thing about calgary for me is mm-hmm. you know i can have my head covered but yeah. you know at some point i need to be comfortable with it and mm-hmm. um you know on camera here i guess you know that's that's a bit anxiety inducing for mm-hmm. me i guess yeah. um but no I, I was fairly comfortable to talk to people about the cancer piece mm-hmm. you know for me i think it it sucks a little bit that that defines my life a little bit now yeah for sure you know i, I try to think of well how i react or respond to to that is more how i can define who i am now and, mm-hmm. but no i don't feel like i need to make people comfortable or that's good and and i think a big thing is uh my give a fuck factor has <laughs> has, changed. has disappeared yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i really don't care about a lot of things mm-hmm. anymore less things phase me i i don't yeah my outlook on a lot of things has changed that that leads me to a question about <clears throat> being present mm-hmm. do you find yourself i guess before all of this Pre-2018 and post-2018, has your ability to be present and things changed at all? Yeah, big time. Not not sitting there looking at Facebook. Mm-hmm. Really helpful to be present. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to be more effective with my time. 
uh, especially having our daughter now, mm-hmm. you know, still taking a lot of things on. Um, I started a master's degree a couple of years ago, which fills in a lot of spare time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the time outside of that, um, I try to make a conscious effort to be present. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so easy to waste time, especially in, you know, social connections that people have. You know, a really great thing I like is a phone prison when you get together mm-hmm. with friends at a, a restaurant. I don't know if you've heard about this. Put your phones away, like in a pile. Yeah, put your phones in a pile and the first person to grab their phone buys dinner <laughs> for everybody. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a really good way for people <laughs> not to grab their phone. But, you know, it's scary with my daughter, even with, you know, trying to avoid getting sucked into my phone or, you know, having some sort of anxiety from a work email or mm-hmm. or whatever. I still spend a lot of time on my phone mm-hmm. and I can see that my daughter is obsessed with phones, mm-hmm. probably because of how much she sees yeah. my wife and I on our phones and she must think, oh, this is really important. Yeah. Mm. Um, so she'll grab it whenever she can. Mm. Um, I'll do that. Yeah. I think it's a result of the times. Yeah. Or when they start swiping on the TV, yeah. you're like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> what have we done? But when they learn, like, how to enter your passcode and, oh, yeah. like, navigate to Netflix and find <laughs> the kids section and turn on Coco Melon. Mm. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's spectacular. Yeah. How fast they learn it. Uh, I had a question about like back a little bit back to the positive psychology stuff. So that I've had a number of mentors and coaches in my life and they kind of have differing opinions on when you wake up, for example, and you feel shitty, you feel mm-hmm. crappy about yourself. Um, some coaches will say, just affirm the opposite. They'll say, you're not, you don't feel crappy. You feel great. You're awesome. You can do this. There's nothing bothering you. Basically ignore that emotion. Yeah, and then there's the coaches that say you have to feel out this emotion, and kind of dig into the why a little bit, and then once you feel it out, you can release it. I'm interested to know: in, do they talk about that at all in positive psychology, and how you would handle something like that? Um, yeah, they do, uh, but you know, you get to learn a lot about um, what what's good for you and what can make you feel good. Um, you know, I'm sure nine times out of 10, you could wake up feeling crappy and think, Oh, I had a couple of glasses of wine last night, Mm -hmm. or I was looking on Facebook until 1am and Mm -hmm. kids are up at six. Yeah. Yeah. I had to learn a lot about, you know, waking up feeling crappy and thinking, okay, what, what can I do tomorrow to, to not feel so bad? Right. Um, so I, I kind of had to learn from it a bit. Uh, you know, I touched on the cold shower thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's only been in the last three or four months, I think. And that's really helped with me getting up early to do schoolwork before our daughter gets up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff I've read is you kind of got to lean into being uncomfortable. Mm. And, you know, I've, I've read a lot of the published pa- papers on resilience and the science of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I almost feel like it's... It's almost like a muscle. It's something that can be trained. Mm. I'm not saying you should go out and, you know, induce pain <laughs> intensely. I think a cold shower is a really safe way to, <laughs> <laughs> there. to do that. But, you know, the last four years have been through so much, so many setbacks. And, um, 
yeah, I've just had to kind of lean into it and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So on top of the having my tumor removed, about two years after that surgery, I noticed I had some swelling over where the tumor had been removed mm -hmm. and went in and got it checked out. And they found that there was an infection in my skull. Uh, oh, so man. they said, okay, we got to take out the section in our skull before the infection gets into your brain tissue. Mm. Um, I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they took that out and that was during COVID. That was terrible. My wife couldn't come and visit me in hospital. Oh, and, no. You know, there was no staff at the hospital at the time. That was, that was really rough. Mm. We were talking earlier to get a prosthetic piece of skull put in was considered elective surgery at the time, which I thought was crazy. So I had to wait nine months to get a prosthetic put in. Up until that point, I had three months of IV antibiotic treatment. So I carried around a little bag with a pump mm -hmm. in it oh for three months. That was terrible. Anyway, cleared up the infection, got a new prosthetic piece of skull. Two weeks later, it was looking terrible, went back. They said, oh, looks like you got another infection. Oh, my goodness. So they said, okay, we're going to take it out. <laughs> and then we'll give you another six weeks of antibiotic treatment. And then we'll put another one in. And, you know, I try to, I think, use my Australian humor. I said to my surgeon, well, will everyone, like, sanitize and wash their hands yeah. before the next one? Because <laughs> I'm getting a little tired, I'm tired of this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, that uh, getting that second infection was was pretty devastating. You know, our daughter was four or five months old at that time. Wow. You know, spending, I think, every surgery I was in hospital for about two weeks. Not being able to see my wife and daughter was, was terrible. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, you know, I knew my physical appearance was deteriorating a bit. And I know that's not in the grand scheme of things really all that important but it, you know it is tough some days looking in the mirror and thinking oh god mm -hmm. here's a reminder of what's going on yeah mm -hmm. and yeah the last surgery in june they took a huge piece of my thigh transplanted that onto my skull um that was that was pretty intense yeah um that was a really long surgery and what are like these are all pretty like on the spectrum of risky surgeries these are up there aren't they not like anytime you're getting close to someone's brain i'm assuming it's yeah a bit higher risk yeah so um i think three of the five surgeries they actually had to cut around or into brain tissue um so there's a lot of unknowns with that mm -hmm. um and i think you know every time i get an anesthetic there's something that goes through my mind of well you know what if i don't wake up mm -hmm. or you know, what if I wake up and I don't realize I'm awake? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's pretty... Yeah, that's not a very comfortable feeling. And mm -hmm. it's something I certainly haven't got more comfortable with every time. Right. It's still really challenging. Yeah. And even with my toolbox of things to try and put me at ease, like, I can't get away from that thought of, of the what if. Yeah. But, you know, I'm lucky things have gone well and... Mm -hmm. You know, it's been over four years now and there's been no recurrence of the tumour. Uh, you know, coming up to five years, next January, five-year survival rate for gliomas, which is the type of tumour I have, is 
fairly low. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky some of the markers in my in my tumor tissue show that it will respond better to chemotherapy and radiation treatment, mm-hmm. which, you know, in theory pushes me up past that five-year mark, but mm-hmm. there's still something in the back of my mind that, okay, you know, time's... Time could be running out. Yeah. But, yeah, I think overall I'm doing really well. I think you're doing amazing. Yeah, thanks. I'm podcasting. Who would have thought five years ago? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Podcasting. Of all the things I yeah. know slang will do. Going <laughs> 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 to podcast. Yeah. You mentioned resilience, and mm-hmm. you've done a lot of reading on resilience. Yeah. We were joking earlier when I gave you a coffee with no sugar in it. It's <laughs> because I'm resilient. But I wanted to talk about that because even before all of this happened... I I could use the word resilient to describe you, but like we've joked about you going out in minus 30 with half a jacket on mm-hmm. and just maintaining a, a good attitude regardless of the situation you're in. What is resilience to you now? Like, Can you talk to us about resilience? Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned before just being supported is really, is really important and you know, I don't want to say I, I owe people anything, but, I, you know, I kind of feel responsible that, you know, I've been so well supportive, so I should really act and have an outlook that corresponds to that. Certainly having a daughter in my life has has changed things and, um, you know, given me a lot of incentive to, to be more resilient. Yeah. But, you know, it's certainly very easy, especially after that second infection, to think, you know this is just how things are going to be um i knew i could have gone that way but i also knew that you know i just would have crumbled and the depression would have come back and Mm. um it's just not a great way to live but yeah like i want to i want to stay optimistic and i want to be able to joke about things and makes me feel better so Mm -hmm. in dealing with adversity there's a kind of two ways that I always wonder um, about. One is like hoping things work out, mm-hmm. kind of thinking, oh, somehow, you know, even there's a bigger plan or yeah. it's meant to be. You don't understand what, why things are happening now, but it'll make sense later on. That kind of viewpoint where you kind of let go. Mm-hmm. And then there's another, not necessarily opposite, but it's different enough to me that it's, I have a vision of how I want my life to go. I want how I want um, to be. Yeah. And and I will keep fighting for that and kind of creating that vision that I have. And regardless of what's going on, pushing forward towards that. I'm guessing you've kind of faced both and, and especially this um, the story about the IVF treatments and then eventually ending up in this adoption of, of a beautiful baby girl. Um, how, how do you see th- those two or... Do you have another um, way of looking at it? Yeah, so going back to stupid things people say in uncomfortable situations, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think a throwaway line of everything happens for a reason is um, a re- really terrible thing to say. You know, there'd be things, times I'd think, well, what's the reason that, you know, I've developed this terminal cancer and mm-hmm. what what's the master plan in this? And, you know, now three or four years later you know maybe that was bringing our daughter into our life um but at the time that was very hard to to see and you know I was really driven you know I kind of had an idea of where I wanted to go professionally and and personally and you know I was on a really good track to kind of hit those goals 
and you know then I had to take a step back and say okay this isn't realistic I'm you know I'm not going to be a CEO of a company or I'm not going to be the mine manager at the mine I was working at probably a trajectory I could have I could have got to and yeah with after the four attempts at IVF I personally had just checked out and thought okay this having kids isn't meant to be for us and that was kind of hard to to wrap my head around but yeah sometimes you just got to be realistic with things you know I, I decided to take on the master's degree and that was something my wife and I argued about a lot I think her point of view was well why what's what are you going to get out of this and I you know after two years of not working I really wanted to get back to work and you know I really wanted to learn more mm-hmm. um, I'd had a great time doing the the six-month program in positive psychology, I, I enjoyed learning and, you know, I'm enjoying it now. I don't enjoy waking up at 5.45 to go and have a cold shower and study. <laughs> but you do it anyway. <laughs> but, but I do it anyway. Yeah, but no, things, your outlook on everything changes um, and you got to be realistic. And, you know, even us looking at buying a condo, you know, it sounds... Sounds silly after just having a, a daughter and having a growing family and a dog to think of moving from a house to a condo, but, you know, at some point that's going to be the reality of our lives and unfortunately we've got to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So you've kind of touched on something I wanted to ask about is the master plan. You said it's part of the master plan. Mm-hmm. Throughout this journey, I'll call it, have you have you found a, a belief or faith in something kind of bigger than us at all? Like, do you believe that there's a destiny? Like, that kind of question. Yeah, I I don't know. Certainly when our daughter came into our life, it was totally unexpected, and it was, you know, I'd say a miracle how it happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very unlikely. And, yeah, that made me think about, you know, maybe there is a master plan. I've, I've got no idea what what that looks like. I can't even wrap my head around it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I think there is something about you know, the energy that you put out into the universe and how that can be received and how that comes back. Yeah. But, you know, I'm an engineer and a, I'd like, I don't want to say I'm a scientist, but I like to, to follow scientific roots and yeah. I don't know what there is to support any of that. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, it's, it's the, I think all of us suffer from the logical, yeah. they call it evidence-based thinking. Yeah. That it's tough to bring yourself up to that level of, but even observing or accepting that the energy you put out often comes back, I think is a big step. Yeah. And it's, and I have no doubt in that. Yeah. I think. No, and I'm sure when I was, you know, thoroughly depressed, the energy going out wasn't great. And mm-hmm. I could definitely tell what was coming back wasn't good. Mm-hmm. I guess it's like you, it seems like you're very good at controlling what you can. Like, yeah. you, there's a lot that's out of our control but kind of still within the situation that you're in choosing what you can that you know will be the best for yourself and for those around you yeah taking on a master's apparently yeah Um, thanks well something uh, i'd wanted to talk about uh, that i came across through the positive psychology work was a concept called neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. Uh, so when i got into neuroscience i'm wanting to figure out what i can do to help my brain came across this it's not a theory it's been proven that even as we get older you know our brain still has the opportunity 
to kind of rewire itself and increase its performance. I think the best way to think about it is, you know, if you've got an exam coming up, you build flashcards and you keep looking at, you know, what what's the cue and what's the answer, and over time that'll reinforce what's happening, and then that'll stay in your brain. Um, I think that's the best way to put it. The you know they describe it as neurons that fire together wire together. So the more rep, rep, repetition you have, uh, the more ability your brain has to to store that and recall it. So for a long time, I think people thought, you know, there was a period of your life, you know, say up until six or seven, when your brain is plastic. Um, but now they're starting to show that that continues later in life. And, you know, for me, when I had that tumor removed, I lost a lot of brain tissue. Um, you know, I would have lost a lot of those neural pathways and things that were wired. And, you know, lifelong learning was something that came up as something that can help. So I wanted to, you know, I wanted to read and I wanted to study and I wanted to learn new skills. I've been trying to learn French painfully, slowly for the last couple of years. Um, and that's something I'll continue doing. And um, so something else I came across and probably something that would be very easy to find uh, there was research done on London taxi and bus drivers that showed their cortical thickness in their brains was far exceeded, exceeded the general population. Huh. Just because of how many, I don't know if you've been to London, but there are so many different streets, so many different ways to get places and having a spatial ability within your brain to navigate is is really important. And I honestly had crazy ideas when my brain wasn't working that, okay, I'm going to move to London and I'll be a taxi driver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <that's laughs> <amazing. laughs> this will, this will help me. Um, you know, maybe this will prolong my life. Um, mm-hmm. and then I thought, okay, maybe that's not realistic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll learn French and take on a master's degree. So yeah, I've, I've been really fascinated by that. And I brought up, uh, Andrew Huberman before and his, uh, podcast, sorry, it's, it's got a lot of traffic. Yeah. <laughs> no, no offense to you. It's something yeah. to aspire to. Exactly. Um, but obviously I'm not the only one that's interested in neuroscience and neurobiology because mm-hmm. he really has some fascinating stuff. And yeah, the more I can learn about the brain, the better. Yeah, it's a interesting. It's probably not a path you thought you'd be on. No, not not something I was really ago. intending to be a, mm-hmm. have an interest in. But um, yeah, it's been fascinating for me. It's so interesting. I kind of want to do it now. Just read what? all of these 52 yeah. books that you've been reading. And then move to London and be a taxi <laughs> driver. A taxi driver, yeah. yeah. There's got to be a VR like game or something that oh, yeah. you can That's do that point. from here. Or we could create the VR game. Yeah, yeah, there you go. You need to get a London taxi driver on uh, on your podcast. Imagine the conversations they've been a part of. I know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They'd have great social connections. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> one of my thoughts is you seem, as we started um, with this point, you seem to have been seeking to get the most out of life mm-hmm. from an early age. Like, that doesn't seem to be a strange new concept for you. Would you say it's changed somehow after your, uh, after going through cancer? Uh, I think it probably accelerated it. You know, we touched on bucket lists. Um, I actually, after I got the CT scan 
and they told me that there was a mass on my brain. They took me in an ambulance to Calgary to get the MRI, and I, I just knew in my body there was something really wrong. Mm. Masses on your brains obviously aren't normal. Ideal, yeah. <laughs> um, and I actually, on my phone, I had my phone with me, mm-hmm. uh, opened up a notes page and started writing down a list of things I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, working towards that, I think, has been great. And it was really interesting for me to look back at that list and see all of it was experience-based. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it was all things I wanted to experience. I love travel. I love going to new places. Um, one of the things that was on my list was seeing 40 countries by 40. Mm-hmm. So I'm 40 now. I turned 41 in May, and I've been to 37 countries now. Wow. And in April, we've got a trip booked to go to Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil. Amazing. So I'm going to hit my 40 countries by 40, which is, I think, awesome. Spectacular, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and my master's degree is on that list. Um, being a dad was on my list, mm-hmm. so that was kind of wild that that came about. Yeah. But, yeah, and I, I think there's a really good thing in setting goals and achieving goals. Um, that's probably a whole nother topic to talk about that I'm certainly no expert in, but, um, you know, I'll feel great once I get to Brazil and hit that 40th country. Mm, no kidding. You know, becoming a dad was just wild and, mm. um, they're really tough days, but, you know, then I get to think, okay, this is something I wanted and mm. something that probably shouldn't have come about, but it did. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think having a list or a even a to-do list is is really important and if the first thing on that is having a cold shower and making your bed then mm-hmm. you know tick those things off and you'll probably feel better about yourself yeah i love, love I, <laughs> I love the idea of calling it a to-do list yeah. yeah and it makes me rethink of rethink my stress surrounding to-do lists i have this anxiety about to-do lists i think that's an engineer thing yeah maybe <laughs> yeah but you've brought a whole new kind of opened a whole new world to what a real to-do list looks like yeah and what the important to-do list Mm -hmm. looks like and maybe that's what we should all be focusing on for the majority of our time here yeah exactly instead of the crappy to-do list the to-do list sound it also sounds a lot more like oh i need to get on this now like i don't know (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. my but it's like oh this is it's now it's not because i think the term bucket list uh, has associated with it like someday yeah, mm-hmm. it certainly does. Right. Um, and actually another one of my support network, uh, he's written a great book called A Hundred Things. Mm-hmm. He had a close friend that passed away and uh, he just sat down and wrote A Hundred Things. Some of them were just stupid and crazy, mm-hmm. but uh, he's started working through and ticking them off. Um, and he was actually another person that reached out to me and was able to to help and give me some ideas and uh, talk about some of the work he's done. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think goal setting is important and I don't necessarily think you need 100 things. I don't even know how many things I got on my list, but, you know, I know 40 countries by 40 is on there and 50 countries by 50 is on there. So, wow. you know, it's nice to have some things to look forward to. Yeah. So you do keep adding to this list? Oh, yeah. In the in the view of work life balance, which you seem to have maybe excelled at, or <laughs> whether whether thoughtfully or not, it was just mm-hmm. something you were doing. Um, how does work fit into this list and your perspective now? 
Yeah, so that's changed a lot. Like I said, I had to throttle back my expectations about what my career was going to look like. Um, I was working in an underground mine um, because of the tumor. I'm at a very high risk for having seizures. Mm. Being a thousand meters underground is a really bad place to have a seizure, according mm-hmm. to my neurologist. <laughs> um, so, I, so, so I can't work uh, underground anymore. And you know, I'm working on a project that's going to build probably the largest underground mine in in North America. Um, so I've had to find myself useful. Uh, in that sense, um, but I've, again, my support network, the insurance that I had through work to cover me on disability was just, it's been so fantastic. I was actually the one that initiated going back to work. They had totally left me alone. They were like, okay, you, you take your time, you get better. Wow. Um, so I pushed to get back to work because I just felt like I needed to do something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's been a day a week. I've been doing that for two years now that probably would have increased if it hadn't have been for the infections and mm-hmm. surgeries on my skull uh but that will progressively increase um yeah under that work-life balance i think to being a dad i'm in no real rush to to get back to full time or start flying in and flying out again yeah mm-hmm. but yeah having that support and you know even through my work they're they're just open to letting me work at my own pace and do things that um, I feel I can be useful at. I know at a previous company we might have worked at, Trevor, I don't think <laughs> I'd be in this position four years later still being overly supported. No, me neither. And, you know, that, that's a really great thing. And another thing I learned, you know, I had the VP of the company personally come and visit my wife and I after I'd had my surgery and, you know, I heard from a lot of people that had spent a lot of time trying to impress and probably being, you know, I don't want to say careful, but anxious about my work performance to try and keep them happy. You know, I got feedback from them that, you know, I was a really big asset to to the company and, you know, they want to do everything they can to support me. That so was, you know, it was great to hear, but it also would have been nice to hear that before. I was just going to say <laughs> that, yeah. Um, so anyone listening that has uh, people that they really care about and think they're doing great work, don't wait until something really bad happens to let them know that um, that can probably be said for your significant other and children as well. No kidding. Once they get off their phones. Yeah, exactly. When I get off my phone, I'll tell them all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just text them. Yeah, just, yeah exactly. Or you, could, or you could post it on Facebook. Yeah, yeah that's true. Just want to let everyone know how oh, much man. I appreciate These my people. wife and kids. <laughs> I hope they see this. <laughs> it's, yeah, all joking aside, it's a really important lesson. And as soon as you said that, I, my brain went to, yeah, why does it take mm-hmm. what yeah. it takes for people to say how much they appreciate somebody? Yeah. And it's workplace is the obvious example but mm-hmm. it's not just work no exactly i'm glad that your current workplace has been supportive and uh so credit to them i, I suppose also i imagine as you said you're, you you must be a pretty big asset for them to to want to reach out beyond the absolute um, yeah. minimum i guess that that has to be done and and goes back to kind of the energy that you put out you yeah, you get yeah. back right like the kind of work ethic and and value that you brought to them and maybe even care to other people the way you show trevor <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah yeah 
came back. I'm glad. Yeah. Is there anything, Alex, that you wanted to say that you haven't had the chance to yet? Anything for our listeners um, that you think they need to hear? Uh, I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot. Um, I definitely do want to call out my wife for how supportive she's been. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, outside of what we've been through together, she's had her own setbacks. Um, and she's just... Yeah, she's amazing. She's always got a smile on her face. Um, I think that probably comes through being a flight attendant. Mm. She gets to see the worst of people and has to smile and yeah, smile and nod. So <clears throat> that can probably tie back to uh, resilience being like a muscle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do it often enough and you get better at it. Um, hmm. But yeah, she's been so strong. It's it's almost scary. But uh, yeah, she's an amazing woman. And all my family and friends that have supported me. A huge part of uh, my family's support network has been my wife's cousins. Uh, they did so much for us uh, while I was going through treatment. And when we had to move to Calgary, we found a house just around the corner from them. Um, and they have been just so amazing for us. Uh, they just do anything for us and... You know, they live around the corner. They get sucked into a lot of favors. Mm-hmm. We joke that we have volumes of IOU books. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's almost no way to repay them. But, um, yeah, again, just in terms of people reaching out and supporting, um, yeah, they've, they've been amazing. And we wouldn't have got to where we are today without them. Wow. Um, so I really want to take a moment to thank them. I love it. And my puppy. Yeah. And your puppy. What's your puppy's name? Bella. Bella. Yeah. Okay. Shout out to Bella. And yeah. Avalon. Exactly. I am so grateful for you coming and saying yes to being on. Yeah. Um, even you. even before all all your, I guess, pre twenty eighteen. Yeah. <laughs> I would say you were a huge inspiration to me, and I oh, saw you, you as resilient and and brave before all that happened. And, Thanks. It's just, yeah, so you are the definition of inspirational. So I just wanted to say thanks for, one, being in my life and, two, coming on and saying yes to. No problem. Thank you. Digging into all of this. Well, and sorry, there's one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, and that's you just touched on being grateful. Mm. Um, so I think gratitude's a really important thing that can help pick you up a bit. Yeah. Uh, and so something we do with our daughter every night before we put her to bed is we talk about something we're grateful for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really great way to end the day. You th- reflect back on, yep. you know, what you got to be grateful for. And I get a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and she doesn't say much. We're not, <laughs> we're not sure what she's grateful for. We get a lot of, eh. Yeah. <laughs> Or no, one day. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, but I think I think that's going to be a great thing for her to have in her life, just a reinforcement of you got to be grateful for for lots of stuff. We got lots to be grateful for. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a very important thing. Uh, we do the same thing. It's funny you mentioned that. We do the same with our three kids. Nice. The name three things you're grateful for, and it's kind of balloon now, like. <laughs> Our seven-year-old, he'll spend half an hour listening to things. It means he doesn't have to go to sleep. <laughs> but that's so smart. smart. It is. Yeah. yeah. But you must get that from Laura. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. 
very grateful to have met you today. Alex. Oh, thank you. Thanks me for as well. your time and yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. All the best.